0: I'm sure many of us have experienced uh, a situation where um, like we, we, we walk into some sort of event, some sort of situation, and it's, it's really poorly organized, it's just not going well, and we think to ourselves, who's in charge around here? I once volunteered to help chaperone a middle school field trip that involved overnight camping in a national park. The only problem was that no one was in charge of the camping. The teachers thought the parents had it. The parents were under the impression that the teachers had it all organized. And chaos was imminent. So those of you that know me will not be surprised, I took charge. This was not a benevolent act. I wanted a good night's sleep and some hot coffee in the morning. And the only way that was going to happen was if somebody was finally in charge. And I don't know about the good night's sleep, but there was hot coffee the next morning. It's one thing to walk into a situation like a camping event, camping trip, and and to take charge. It's another thing altogether when it feels like the world and our lives in it are out of control. And I think I'm probably not the only one here that has that feeling. The the world feels a little bit more out of control than it did just a few years ago. From pandemics to extreme weather events, from an explosion of homelessness and drug abuse in our own city, to war in Europe in our lifetimes, who thought that would happen again, to... This thing called inflation that like disappeared for a long time and high interest rates that are all of a sudden back to gender confusion everywhere we turn, it just feels like the world isn't stable anymore. All the things that we could count on feel like they're changing. And so you would be excused for asking the question, is anyone in charge? Is, is there a plan? We're not, we're not the first ones to feel that the, the bottom of the world has dropped out and it's spinning out of control. At the turn of the sixth century BC, a young man named Daniel and a bunch of his elite peers found their world falling apart. Judah, the, the nation that they were a part of, had lost its political autonomy and they, as political elites, had been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it's out of his experience that he wrote the book in the Old Testament that bears his name, the book of Daniel. It's a book written by and to people who are wondering if anyone is in charge. But the message of the book of Daniel is a resounding yes. In in answer to the question, who's in charge around here, Daniel's answer is God. God actually is in charge, though it won't always feel like it and it won't always look like it. And, And this book was written in many ways to, to comfort believers, people like most of us in this room. But whether you're a believer or not, if there is a God and there is, and if He is in charge and He is, that has huge implications for how we live our lives. Now, this this morning, we're going to look at the first chapter of Daniel. It's the prologue. It kind of sets everything up. But before we do, I want to give you a quick orientation to the whole book so you have a little bit of a sense of of where we're going and how we're going to get there. The the book has 12 chapters, and it's divided neatly into two halves. Chapters 1 through 6 are historical narrative about Daniel and his friends there in Babylon. Babylon. It covers a period of about 70 years. And uh, my my friend, some of you guys have have heard him, a guy named David Helm. David Helm has observed that really these first six chapters are all about being at home in Babylon. How how, how do you live in a place like Babylon? And and that's what these first six chapters kind of get at. What what does it mean to live as aliens and exiles? And, And so I think it has a lot to say to us as Christians today. Because we know, as Christians, this world is not our home, even though we need to be at home in it. So that's the first six chapters. Chapters 7 to 12, the second half of the book, are apocalyptic visions of the future, They're a lot like Revelation. In fact, it's going to cycle through and repeat over and over again the way the book of Revelation does. And they're really all about the hope that the kingdom of God is going to be established. The kingdom of God is going to win, even though, before we get there, there are going to be a lot of trials and trouble and suffering. So again, to to quote David Helm, if, if the first six chapters are about being at home in Babylon, the last six are about getting home from Babylon. Getting home from Babylon. And it turns out that that we need both halves to live well in this world. We, we, We need to know how to live while we're here, but we need to never forget that this is not the end. We're headed somewhere else. Now, that's one way of thinking about the structure of the book, and it'll help orient you as we move through the book. But the structure in the message of Daniel is a little more complex. So chapters 2 through 7 are not written in Hebrew like the rest of the Old Testament is. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in a language called Aramaic. Aramaic, at, at the time that this book was written, was the international language of trade and diplomacy. Only Israelites could read and speak Hebrew, but everybody could read and speak Aramaic. So as we're going to see in in these chapters, uh, particularly two to seven, God has a message to the nations that is being delivered by his people. A message to the nations delivered by his people. I think that's part of the reason it's written in a language that the nations can read. There is, in other words, a missionary thrust to Daniel. Daniel not only has something to say to us, it has something to say to the world about who God is and how they need to respond to him. Now, chapter 1, which we're going to look at today, which is the prologue, it's written in Hebrew, but chapters 8 through 12 are also in Hebrew. In those chapters, especially 8 through 12, God has a message not to the nations, but about the nations, and it's a message delivered to God's people. Just like Revelation in New Testament, Daniel is meant, as it looks out to the future, as it tells us about the fate of the nations, it is meant to encourage and strengthen us to persevere in faithfulness and in hope. And that, I think, leads us back to chapter 1. As Daniel opens, two different kings are preparing their servants for a job. One of those kings is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. The other is God. Now, what's interesting about this is they're both preparing the same group of servants, Daniel and his friends, And as we walk through chapter one, what we're going to see is we're going to see the job offer, we're going to see the probation and training period, and we're going to see the promotion. That's kind of the outline. Both kings think they're in charge. But as we all know, there can only be one boss. Here, I think, is the argument of chapter one, the thing that I want to convince you of and get you to consider The world wants your talent. The Lord wants your heart. The the world wants your talent. The Lord wants your heart. Which leaves the servants both then and now with a choice. Which will you give? Who's which which king will you live for? It turns out that you can give both, but only if you really give one. You can give both. You can give your talents to the world. You can give your heart to the Lord. But only if first you give your heart to the Lord. All right, so let's walk through this chapter. First, first. We're going to look at the job offer. Look with me, if you would, at Daniel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 6. And I didn't tell you what page to find this on if you're using one of the Bibles we're, we're, we've provided. So it's page 782. If you're using one of those black Bibles in the pews and the chairs, Daniel chapter 1 is found on page 782. All right, Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king, among them from the Judites we Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. We'll stop there. All right. It's the year 605 BC. And, and you know, in, in BC times, like we're counting backwards, right? So they're really right at the turn of the century. It's, we're going to be in the 500s in just, a few, in just a few years. So it's 605 BC. It's the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, and it's not going well. Like Nebuchadnezzar's shown up. He's laid siege to the city. He, he, he wins. <laughs> he, 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 he's carting off people. Now, I, I want to just be clear for those of you that kind of know a little bit about Bible history. This is not the final fall of Jerusalem that you read about in the prophet Jeremiah. That's still 18 years away. But before the final destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar showed up. And, and, and laid siege to the city and basically reduced Jehoiakim to, to a vassal, to a, a, a servant king of his. And he carts off loot, we're told, vessels from God's house that he put in Bel's house, the, the treasury of his god. Bel was one of the names of Marduk, the main god of the Babylonians. But these aren't the only vessels that he took. He didn't just take material loot he took some human vessels. The cream of the crop were taken into exile. These are young men from the royal family and from noble families. And, and why, why were they taken in particular? Well, well, the point in part is to take them as hostages. Their, their safety is meant to basically pacify the noble families back in Jerusalem. You don't want to rebel now because your son's lives are in danger. So part of it's to pacify Judah, but part of it is also to begin to integrate Judah into the larger Babylonian empire. Th- these guys are, are being offered a job, and they're being offered a job because they're, they're, they're smart, they're talented, they're good-looking, they're, they're strong. They're Nebuchadnezzar is going to provide them room and board for three years. They're going to learn the language and the culture. And at the end of all of that, as we see there in verses 4 and 5, they're going to attend the king. You see, the Babylonian empire was growing. It was already large. It was getting larger. It was a huge administrative state. And capable bureaucrats were needed. And it was really helpful if those bureaucrats came from all different parts of the empire. It would make things run more smoothly. Now, of course, this is a job offer that they can't refuse. They are captives. They're, they're, they're in exile. They're far from home. They're hostages against further rebellion. And though the text doesn't say this explicitly, the, the mention of Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, there in, um, in, in verse 3, we, we would call him the prime minister. Oh, that, that reminds us of one of the most common features of high government service in the ancient Near East. These young men, probably aged anywhere from 10 to no more than 20, would almost certainly have been made eunuchs as part of the process. They would have been castrated as part of the deal. And that's a sobering thought. It means that, that whatever future they had imagined for themselves back in Israel, of marriage and family and whatever, that's gone for these guys. E- even if they were to get back to Israel, they're, they're, they're kind of done in terms of the normal sort of future that most of us want to pursue. Their only future now lays in making the best of the situation and getting ahead in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And as we've seen, among them are Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. You got to wonder what these men must have been thinking. The text actually doesn't say. It's, um, it's amazing how little the text takes us into kind of the psychology and the emotions of, of the people in the book of Daniel. Occasionally it'll happen, but usually it doesn't. But I don't think it's hard to imagine, right, the, the horror, the, the sorrow, the despair. But then maybe at some point, the determination to make the best of the lot that they have, to, to make the best of it on the terms that have been dealt to them. All right. So I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to have the kind of future back in Israel that I thought I would. But you know, a high civil servant in the ancient Near East could exercise real power, no real influence, could grow quite rich and live a rather comfortable if somewhat lonely life. And it's likely that quite a few of those guys just decided to get on with that. Friends, there's no question that the world offers us a lot for our talents. It offers us wealth. It, it offers us power. It offers us influence. And not once in the book of Daniel is, is Daniel or, or, or the Lord in, in these scriptures, not once is he going to condemn those things. Wealth and power and influence are not condemned in the book of Daniel. In fact, as, as I said, kind of in the intro, right, Daniel is very much about being at home in Babylon, being at home in the world. And some of you might have noticed that in verse 2, where it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar carried all this to the land of Babylon, literally, it's to the land of Shinar. You know what was in Shinar? Babel. You go back to Genesis 11, and the land of Shinar, the main city in, in Shinar is Babel. Babylon is Babel. They're one and the same. Daniel and his friends are in the heart of the world, in all of its wealth and ingenuity, in, in all of its technological progress, in all of its opposition to God. And, and, and being at home there is very much about learning how to use worldly education, how to use power or money or wealth to do, as a follower of God, as much good as you can in this world. But we would be naive to forget that the world always exacts a price for what it gives. Thankfully, it's no longer castration and exile. I, for one, am very thankful of that. But it's a price anyway. The price might be the life of your unborn child because it's getting in the way of your plans for your future. The, 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 the price might be your integrity or your honesty at work because the only way to get ahead is to please the boss, and the boss kind of likes things on the side. The, the, the price might be your absence from your kids' lives because you're so busy at work trying to provide for their future. The price might be that you've got no time to invest in your own spiritual growth or the spiritual growth of others because the demands of growing other things like career and success is just too demanding. I want to be really clear here, the Bible never says, don't be engaged, don't take advantage of the opportunities that the world offers. The Bible never says that, but it warns us, it does warn us that there are limits to the price that we should be willing to pay to do good in the world, to get ahead in the world. Christian, do you know what that limit is in your own life? Would you know how to recognize it when you bumped up against it? Are you aware of the particular price that you might be asked to pay in your particular situation? If you're not aware, how will you know when you get there? How will you know not to pay it when it comes. This is a place where it's always good to have good friends around us that can kind of ask some questions, that can help shine a light on our particular situation. It's always easier to see the price someone else shouldn't pay than the price we shouldn't pay. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only king making a job offer that cannot be refused. God is too. Look look back at verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Right from the start, the the book of Daniel is clear that this turn of events is not an unfortunate accident. It's it's not a mistake of misguided foreign policy. It's it's not a tragedy that could have been averted. No, the Lord, to, to borrow the language of another Old Testament prophet, the Lord whistled and Nebuchadnezzar came running. The Lord brought Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem. The the Lord handed Jehoiakim and his court over to Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Lord that placed Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Now, we haven't been told why yet. We'll, we'll, We'll get there. But I think this is the big picture that all of us need to understand whether it's back then or whether it's today, we are in the position that we're in because the sovereign Lord has put us there. Your life is not an accident. Your, your life is not a, a tragedy. It's not all about just you trying to make the best decision possible. No, the Lord is sovereign, and He places people exactly where He wants them in exactly the situation that He wants them now, I want to be clear here, that doesn't mean that, that we don't have any responsibility. It doesn't mean that, that our actions, our choices are meaningless. To the contrary, it's precisely because God is in control and ruling all things that our choices, in light of that, have profound meaning, have profound moral weight, because our choices are always, not just sort of abstract, neutral choices, no, they're always choices in light of God and who He is and what He's doing. I I think what it does mean, though, is that we're often asking the wrong question about our life, especially as we look at it and are happy about it. You know, we are so often busy asking the question, why me? We we feel the unfairness of the situation. We're, We're concerned about getting what we don't deserve or not getting what we do deserve. But I don't think, particularly as believers, I don't think it's questions of fairness that we should be asking. What we should be asking are questions of faithfulness. Not why me, but given my situation, what does the Lord expect of me? What what, what opportunity has the Lord put in front of me to demonstrate faithfulness or maybe just faith? What would it look like in this situation that I can't control, that I didn't choose, but here I am? What would it look like in this situation to show the world that I love the Lord, that I trust the Lord, that I'm going to honor the Lord regardless of the circumstance? Some of us need to ask the question, why, a little less often. And instead, start asking the question, all right, well, what should I do? How can I display my love for the Lord even in this situation? Well, Daniel and his friends have been hired. Not by one king, but by two. But, like any new hire. Before they can do the job, they need to be trained. And as any of us that have been in kind of entry-level jobs, we know there's usually a period of probation at that new job to make sure that we're qualified to do what we've been hired to do. So it's no different here. Let's, let's consider the probation, secondly, of Daniel and his friends. Look at verse 7. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Misael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, kids, I, I, just, I just want you to rest easy I am not going to use this as, an, as, a, as a proof text for why you've got to eat your vegetables. I'm not going to use this to, to reinforce your parents' desire for you to eat your vegetables. You should, but that's not what this is about, all right? So I just, that way you can not be fearful as we listen to this next section, all right? So it, it's interesting here, right? Um, the... The the probation begins. The the training curriculum has already been announced. Verse 4, right? The the Chaldean language and literature. These guys are going to be thoroughly schooled in the the culture and the wisdom and the worldview of Babylon. They're basically being sent to college. Uh, And so all that's left is to, as new employees, uh, you got to give them their name tags. Got to give them their name tags. The the chief eunuch gave each of them new names. Daniel, which means God is my judge, became Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Remember, we've already talked about Bel. That's the main God of the Babylonians. The other three get new names too. What's going on with this? Well, it's a power move. Naming is an act of authority. And ownership. Parents name their children. I don't get to name your kids, and you don't get to name mine because they're my kids, and they're your kids, right? There, there, there's, there's a relationship there in, in, uh, of authority. So, parents name their kids. Inventors name their inventions. Explorers name their discoveries. Well, that's kind of what's, what's going on here. These guys are owned by the king, and every time they hear their new name, they're reminded of it. But, but it's not just that they're owned by the king. You, you, can, you can hear it there in Daniel's name, his new name, may Bel protect his life. They're being given a new identity. They're, they're basically being set up to become Babylonians and not be Israelites anymore. And then they're sent to school. Everyone knows school is hard work but unlike some of you, they are not having to put themselves through school. They've got a full scholarship, full room and board for three years. All they have to do is study hard, eat well, pass their exam at the end of the three years, sort of like the British system, where you just got that one exam at the end of three years that counts for everything, right? And, and then they're set for life. They are set for life. It's a pretty straightforward probation. And it seems that most of the young men in this cohort that's been exiled to Babylon, most of them seem to be happy to go along with it. And yet it's right here, all of a sudden, that Daniel and his three friends draw a line. Verse 8, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. All right, so what's going on? What's wrong with the king's food and the king's wine? The text doesn't tell us. So people have speculated on a lot of of different possibilities. One possibility is that uh, the problem is the food isn't kosher. It's not prepared according to the Levitical food laws, and Daniel doesn't want to defile himself. Now, that's true. Some of that food was not kosher, and eating it would have defiled him. But the problem is it doesn't explain the wine. All the wine would have been kosher. There was no such thing as non-kosher wine back then like there is today. So that doesn't quite explain all the details we're seeing. Now, other people think that it's, it's basically a decision on Daniel and his friends' parts to, to avoid worldly indulgence. The, the king's table is a rich table. I'm sure the wine was quite good, right? So Daniel instead is adopting a, an ascetic posture in order to be holy it's an appealing idea. The only problem with that idea is that nowhere in the Old Testament is vegetarianism associated with piety. The Israelites were many things. Vegetarians, they were not. Others think it's because the food would have been sacrificed to idols. You know, we saw this when we were going through 1 Corinthians. In the ancient Near East, the local grocery store was often the back wall of the local temple. And and the the food and even some of the grain and wine would have been first offered to the idols. That's possible. Uh, Maybe even part of it. But the problem is, it doesn't explain why the issue is that it's the king's food. Because if that's the problem, it applies to any food they're going to find in Babylon except the food that they raised and grew themselves. I think the explanation that makes best sense of of both Daniel's concern and the details that are in the text that are emphasized is to remember that to share a table in the ancient Near East is to swear friendship with the people at that table. You you didn't eat with just anybody. You ate with your friends. And, And to eat at the king's table was to give him your allegiance. I think what's going on here in making sure that these men are fed from the king's table with the king's wine is what's going on here is it's it's another act of submission to the king's authority. It goes right along with the new names. And this is where Daniel draws the line. You see, Daniel isn't finally worried about his probation under King Nebuchadnezzar. What Daniel is concerned about is his probation, his his test of faithfulness to the Lord. I think this is why he proposes vegetables and water to the guard there in verse 12. He, He asks to be allowed to eat only the food that comes not from the king's table, but from the creator's table. I'm sure that the food that came from the king's table was really good, and the king's chefs had done a lot to it. Daniel is making the point that, no, I'm going to eat only what comes kind of directly from the Lord, and it's his table at which I'm going to eat. Now, this is a risk. God had given Daniel favor with the eunuch. We see that in verses 9 and 10, but, but the eunuch is like... He's scared for his life. He says as much. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid for my life. If you guys, if I let you do this, and then you guys don't look as good, you, you know, it's my, my life is on the line. Literally, his head is guilty. And so in, in making this request, Daniel himself is, is taking a risk. It's not just the eunuch's head that's on the line. It's the guard's head, and it's Daniel's head. But Daniel knows that loyalty to the Lord is never misguided, no matter the risk. And so he proposes this short test. It's just 10 days, hardly enough time to make a difference. Nobody will be the wiser. Nobody will know. Now, at the end of the 10 days, we see there in in verse uh, 13, Well, he says in 13, make a decision based on what you see. And then verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, what did he see? Well, they looked better, healthier, literally fatter of flesh than all the young men who are eating the king's food. The guard can see the difference after only 10 days of vegetables. And so the substitution continues for the next three years. They eat vegetables and water. Again, the text doesn't tell us, but it is hard to escape the conclusion that God didn't intervene here. Ten days is hardly enough time to make a huge difference in in somebody's physical appearance based on what they're eating. It, it, It appears that God honored Daniel's faithfulness, and he did so in a way that the world could not miss. Daniel passed his probation before the Lord. They didn't defile themselves, not so much because of the food they didn't eat, but they didn't defile themselves because they didn't give their hearts to the king. They didn't swear their loyalty and allegiance to the king. Instead, they reserved their heart for the Lord, even as they studied for an exam to serve the king. Now, if you're not already thinking about this, you should be reminded of Joseph at this point. Joseph, who is described as smart and capable and good-looking, what a weird detail, but I think it's because it's the way Joseph is described, exiled, given a new name, tested, who passes the test in order that he might deliver a message to the nations and prepare for the coming exile of the people of God. We're going to come back to this theme again. But just note that it starts right here. Christian, where is the world tempting you to defile yourself by compromising your allegiance to the Lord? I'm not suggesting we're on probation. We're not on probation. If you are in Christ, then then, then Christ passed the test for you. You you, you are not on probation. But life in this world, our faith is constantly being tested, isn't it? It's constantly being pressed. Where where are you being pressed? How how would you know that, that a particular point in your life is a point at which you're your loyalty to the Lord or to the world is being tested. Let me offer three categories. One is the most obvious, and that's just immorality. The, 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 the temptation to, to give your heart to what you see on the screen, to, to give your heart to a relationship that you shouldn't. Uh, to, to give your heart to, to getting ahead at work by being unethical or getting ahead at school by cheating. All of those acts of immorality are, in fact, not just breaking a rule. No, they're, they're acts of disloyalty to, to the Savior who died for you. Our, our sin is a, is a spitting in God's face. It's, it's a rejection of the relationship. And if you're not a Christian, I, I want you to understand that about sin. That sin is fundamentally not about rule-breaking, but about relationship destruction. Uh, about a rejection of the God who made you and loves you. So, so one category is definitely immorality. Wherever you see immorality in your life, understand that's a... That's a point where your, your, your loyalty to the Lord, your love for the Lord is being tested. And which are you going to say yes to? I think another category to think about is not just immorality. Another category to think about is hypocrisy. And what I have in mind here is those, those points is obviously hypocrisy in our own lives. But, but actually what I have in mind here is the hypocrisy that causes us to excuse the faults in our friends that we refuse to excuse in our enemies. So when in in our political allegiances, we, we go after one party or one side, but then when it's pointed out that our own favorite party also has its own same problems, we're ready to make all sorts of excuses for it, Friends, that kind of hypocrisy is revealing that you have a higher loyalty than the Lord. If you're you're willing to excuse the one while condemning the other for the same thing or the similar thing, then you're displaying a loyalty to the party over the Lord who condemns both. Now, this this might happen in our political allegiances. is one of the things that makes me so nervous about so-called Christian nationalism, which just so often doesn't look like Christianity. But it plays itself out in our friendships as well. It plays itself out in our families. It it plays itself out in, in our relationships at work. Are we tolerating double standards in different aspects of our lives and so, revealing that there is a relationship or a set of relationships that's more important than our loyalty to the Lord. Third category, our priorities. So, immorality, hypocrisy, priority. Uh, recently, our, the block that I live on was, was planning a block party, and actually, I live on a block that likes their block parties, so they tend to try to have them once a month, right? And um, I know, uh, it's Portland. So anyway, so we're, we, we're, they're planning this block party, and, and one of the organizers is talking to my wife, and uh, they're, they're hoping we can participate and help out and stuff, but they've planned it for uh, like, I forget, 5.30 or 6 on Sunday evening. Like right during prayer meeting. And my wife says to them, Oh, I'm so sorry, we're not going to be able to attend. We're not going to be able to help because uh, we're, we're going to be at church. We, we have a prayer meeting uh, every Sunday at, at, at 5. And the person says to her, You mean you got to be there every Sunday? And my wife realized at that moment she had an easy out. And it's probably the out I would have taken or she could tell the truth. The easy out was saying, yeah, I know, it's my husband's job. <laughs> you know, we'd love to be there, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he's got to show up at work, right? But I'm so proud of my wife because that's not what she said. She said, um, yeah, every Sunday, because there's nothing more important than we do as Christians than gather with fellow Christians to worship God and pray. When the schedule came out for when all the future block parties were gonna be, they're all scheduled for Sunday at six. I want to suggest to you that as you're kind of trying to think through your priorities and are there priorities that are that have been risen above your loyalty to the Lord, I want you to consider how your priorities are impacting the Lord's day. Now I want to be really clear. I'm not standing here saying you can never miss a Sunday. That is not what I'm saying, because the Bible doesn't say that. But I am trying to, because I am trying to get you, give you something that you can use to think about and see something that's really hard to see. Right? So as you think about Sundays and, and and scriptures command that we gather to worship once a week, and I think the encouragement that we gather to pray, so we do that in the morning, to to what we're doing right now, sit under God's word and to worship. And then we, in the evening, we gather again to pray. I want you to ask yourself, what priorities cause me to miss one or the other of those with any frequency at all? What priorities would cause me to say, yeah, I should be at church, but not this week, not this time? There are all sorts of things that keep us from gathering with the Lord's people that aren't our choice. That's not what I'm wanting you to think about. I'm wanting you to think about your voluntary decision not to gather with God's people on Sunday. And as you look at that, if you begin to see, you know what, there's something that kinda comes up again and again, that that repeatedly gets in my way of attending the Lord's public worship with the Lord's people. I should maybe look at that because that might actually be a priority that it doesn't trump God and, and our visible display of loyalty to the Lord. It doesn't trump Him every week, but it seems to always win when there is a conflict. I can think of lots of examples, right, in this world. Youth sports is one of the biggest offenders. Uh, various kinds of recreation or entertainment that we want to pursue. The the demands of work that aren't required, but boy, if I meet them, I'll get ahead. Uh, We were convicted of this as a family. You know, it would have been very easy for us to go off on sabbatical and take a sabbatical from church. And we realized, no, no, we can't do that because it's not about my job. It's about the Lord. It's about our public display of loyalty and love to the God who died for us. And so when we were in town, we were here at Henson. Even though it was kind of hard to be here because it was hard to, I was supposed to be on sabbatical. And it was, but no, no, we were here. And in, in Canada, uh, for that uh, a glorious month, I'll tell you about it tonight, uh, we had five Sundays away and we were in four different churches five times. Um, it made me miss you. It made me miss you a lot, but you know it would have been really easy to just do house church. I'm a pastor; <laughs> we could just do church ourselves. <laughs> and, but we, but we knew, no, no, vacation is not a reason to not gather with God's people. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here. Uh, some really close friends of mine at this moment are running around Mount Hood. It's fine. Um, I just want you to think about it. Uh, you're the only one that can look at your life, and you're the only one that will be able to tell is there something that's coming up actually again and again? And I always say no to church to say yes to that. That might be a clue that there's a priority that's off. We've seen the job offer, we've seen the probation. We're gonna conclude by looking and seeing if they get the promotion. So look at verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year Of King Cyrus. All right, I I think it's significant that the first promotion that we see really is the one that the Lord gives, not the one that Nebuchadnezzar gives. Just as God put them in Babylon, just as God gave them favor with the eunuch and the guard, so it's God who gave them knowledge and understanding in every kind of wisdom and literature. He caused their study to be fruitful and gave them what they needed. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying they didn't study hard. So if you're a student, this is not a proof text for just hanging out with your friends and eating kosher pizza. It's not. No, you need to study, right? But, but, but what, what is clear is that God honored Daniel's faithfulness. God didn't need Daniel's talents. God's gonna give Daniel all the talents he needs. No, what, what God wants is their heart. And as we've already seen, that's exactly what they gave him. And God honored that. Having given God their hearts, God gave them everything they needed to be at home in Babylon. And then Babylon recognizes it, right? The king himself interviews them. He founds that none are equal to them. In fact, they're they're ten times better. Two hands count it up: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten times better than all of their peers. And so they get the promotion. And then we're, we go on to learn that they they faithfully and diligently work that job for one king after another. Verse 21 tells us that Daniel would remain there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus is the head of a completely different empire that's going to conquer Babylon. He keeps at his job for 70 years. 70 years of working for pagan kings. 70 years of engaging in in work that they'd they'd been assigned as civil servants and administrators and advisors. Now, obviously, they did their job well. You you don't survive successive bosses unless you're good at what you do. So they did their job well. But as we're going to see as we move through the book of Daniel, their loyalty to the Lord, their love for the Lord is going to be repeatedly challenged and tested. And it would have been so easy to check out. Right, Being at home in Babylon is not an easy task. But they stuck it out. And Christian, I think there's a lesson here for us. It's good to be good at what you do in your job out there, in your, in your calling as, as, a, as a parent, in your calling at, at, at secular employment. It is good to be good at what you do. And it's good to work hard and faithfully in whatever context God's put you. That's a good and godly thing. Jeremiah wrote the exiles while Daniel was there, and part of his instruction to them in Jeremiah 29 was settle down, have families, work hard, buy property, seek the good of the city where you live. You, you see, God intended to bless his exiled people in Babylon. And part of the way that was going to happen, as as they, as they worked hard to be a blessing to their city, as they were at home in a place that they never called home. So, so Christian, is that your attitude? Is that your attitude toward your work, toward our city? Are we good neighbors? Or are we faithful and hard workers? Are we willing to persevere here, specifically in Portland, even though it's not easy? Some of you have lived here for a long time, and and you're dismayed at what's going on. It no longer feels like home. But the reality is, it never was home. It just sort of felt that way. Now that it no longer feels that way, are we willing to continue to stick it out? It would be easier as believers to live somewhere else, someplace like Idaho or Texas, where there are more, just just sheer more people who share our faith and our values. But if we all move there, what good would that do the people that are here? Daniel was sent to Babylon. He didn't choose it. God has placed us in Portland. I want us to consider being here, not because it's easy, but precisely because it's not easy. You know, it's not just that Nebuchadnezzar gave them a promotion. God did too. God not only gave Daniel and his friends wisdom and understanding, he particularly gave Daniel the ability to understand visions and dreams. You see that there in verse 17. We're going to see Daniel put that ability to work over and over again. God didn't just qualify Daniel and his friends to to prosper at their secular jobs. God gave them the ability to do the job that he had prepared for them to do. And that job was to be a witness a witness to the sovereignty and the holiness and the mercy of the one true God. Daniel had been given the ability to deliver God's message to the nations in a way that they could understand. He was given the ability to understand the dreams and then the ability to speak it in their language. But it's because Daniel and his friends had given the Lord their hearts That they were qualified to be his messengers. It's not enough just to have good speaking ability. The Lord wanted his heart. And it's that giving of the heart that qualified him to do the work of an evangelist. Brothers and sisters, do you want to grow in your evangelism? Do you want to be an evangelist? Now, maybe you don't. We can talk about that later. But for those of you that do, it's it's really good to to learn how to explain the gospel. It's really good to learn how to answer certain objections. But the most important thing you can do to grow in, in your faithfulness and your effectiveness as an evangelist is to give the Lord your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart must be the most important qualification to be a messenger of the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. It's in that way, I think, that Daniel and his friends point forward to the ultimate messenger that came with God's ultimate message. That, that messenger was Jesus Christ. And he proved himself fully qualified to be a messenger about God's love to the nations by, by living a life that was wholly devoted to the Lord in love. He'd never sinned. And yet just as God handed over Daniel and his friends to exile, so God handed over his own son to be rejected by religious authority, to be crucified by worldly authority, but ultimately into the exile from God's presence that our sin deserved. Jesus Christ bore that. But it was all part of God's plan. John declares that God gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him might have eternal life. That is to say, through faith in Christ, we become qualified to live with God forever. And friends, God did this because of love, because of His love for the world, because of His love for sinners like you and me. If you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. God didn't send his messenger to to come at you with a message telling you how bad you are and there is no hope. No, no, he sent his messenger, Jesus Christ, with a message that says, this is how much I love you. That though you deserve death, I'm going to die for you. And what I ask in return is to simply trust me. Friends, we'd love to talk to you more about what it would look like for you to trust God's love for you as it's proclaimed in Jesus Christ. Think about what the world asks of you and what God asks of you. The world wants your talent. And the world is going to reward you for your talent, even while it makes you pay a terrible price. The Lord doesn't need your talent. The Lord wants your heart. Now, I get it. That's a bigger ask. That's a much bigger ask for sure. Giving the Lord your heart is going to mean saying no to worldly things. In order to say yes to God, it's going to bring the world's opposition into your life. It will mean trial. It will mean testing. It will mean trouble. But the Lord never asks for something that He hasn't first given Himself. Friends, He's given you His heart. He's given you His heart Because he's given you his son. Which king would you rather serve? Isn't the choice clear? Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and think about the thing that is keeping you from giving your heart to the Lord. Think about the thing that that competes with the Lord for your heart and just confess that to Him. Don't, Don't pretend it's not there. Just confess it to Him and ask Him to become more lovely than the thing that is competing for your affection. Heavenly Father, we confess that our hearts are fickle, that we are so easily swayed and pulled in all sorts of different directions, and yet you alone are worthy of our hearts. And so we ask that you would work in us sovereignly, that that, that we would give you our hearts unreservedly, and, and that then our love and loyalty to you would be evident for all to see, that that though we want to be of service to this world, we serve you alone, for you alone are worthy of our allegiance. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.